Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and it's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from Thessalonians. Now, these lessons come from the Nazarene Quarterly, and this would be the summer quarter of 2021. And today we are actually using the lesson from June 13th. The title, The Family of God, and this is a continuation of last week's lesson. Before we get into the lesson, however, let's start with prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul prays, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. I taught chemistry in high school for several years, and it was always interesting to me how the different chemicals, how the elements would react when they were brought together. For example, sodium. Sodium is a soft, silvery metal. It's a solid, uh, and it actually will explode when you place it in water. Chlorine is a greenish gas, and it's highly toxic. It's highly poisonous. However, if you put sodium and chlorine together, you get sodium chloride, which is common table salt. It's a white crystal. It's not a metal. It dissolves in water. It doesn't explode. It's not poisonous. In fact, it's essential for most living organisms. Somehow, two things, sodium and chlorine, that are so different by themselves, when they come together, they create something totally new. The same thing happens to us when we gather together as a body of Christ. We become something much more than just a group of individual Christians. We become the incarnation of Christ himself, the actual presence of Christ in this world. And as such, we are then the salt of the earth, the salt that Jesus called us to be. It's interesting, uh, my mother loves to watch the Waltons, the old TV show, and a lot of times I'll watch it with her. And one of the regular scenes is the family on Sunday morning going to church. And all of them pile into their old pickup truck and they head down the road. But what's interesting, a big part of the plot is the father. The father never goes to church. He always stays at home. Now, the show makes it plain. He's a good man, but he doesn't go to church. He takes the idea, I can worship God anywhere. I can worship God best up on Walton's Mountain. Or I can worship God beside uh, the creek while I'm fishing. And for many people, they have this same idea. Now, the problem is, this is the wrong concept of church. We assume that church is there to maximize my spiritual potential. That the church is there for my spiritual fulfillment and growth. If it helps me, fine. If I find something else that works better, well, that's fine too. So we think of church in a lot of ways as similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's there for those who need it. It's not necessary for everyone. 
and it's not required for anyone. What makes this attitude even worse is we find it in many Christians, people who actually go to church. They may attend Sunday after Sunday, but they also have this same basic concept of the church. They feel that the function of the church is to keep them operating at peak efficiency, to provide resources for their personal, private relationship. So, when we look at church like this, we feel fellow believers may be helpful to our spiritual growth, but we don't really understand our very spiritual lives depend upon this group of believers. We, the, the function of the church is not just therapeutic. It's not there to help us live better lives. It's, it's there to help us live out the salvation of God. When we take the, the earlier idea of the church, that the church is there to help me, our salvation becomes something that's very self-centered. And so a lot of times we feel like, well, if the church is not meeting my needs, then I'm okay in going somewhere else. But our salvation, our Christian faith itself, uh, is intended to be deeply personal, but it's not intended to be individualistic. R.C. Sproul has a quote where he says, It's foolish to suppose that we will make much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Last week, I brought up John Wesley. And as a young man, Wesley had been uh, visited by an older Christian who told him, You cannot serve God alone. You have to either find Christian companions or make them. And Wesley took this very much to heart. Uh, from then on, he taught that there was no such thing as a solitary Christian. He writes, You cannot find the idea of a solitary religion in the New Testament Scriptures. We're not saved alone, but we're saved together. So, for Wesley, if a Christian was going to experience full salvation, they must be in fellowship with other believers. Uh, now, we need to take Wesley's remarks at face value. You know, uh, biblical fellowship is not just an extra. It's not just something that's good. It's something that's essential for us. We can see this from the attitude of, of the early church. They put worshiping together, fellowshipping together on equal parts with listening to the apostles speak. And, and hearing the teachings of Christ. So, if we want to have full salvation, we need the fellowship of the church. Now, we can have atonement. We can have forgiveness of our sins. We can be made right with God. This comes through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that we are saved because of what Christ did for us on the cross. However, salvation is more than just a personal relationship with Christ. To have full salvation, we need this fellowship with the other believers. In the New Testament, fellowship is God's full experience of salvation for us. It's the full measure of all that He intends for us to have. Our salvation begins with Christ. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So salvation begins here, but it doesn't end here. Scripture tells us that we are actually the temple of God. We contain the Spirit of God within us. Now, sometimes Paul tells us that we individually are the temples of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have received from God? You are not your own. So here, Paul is pointing out that each one of us, each of us individually, act as the temple. But earlier in chapter 3, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So here, Paul is telling us that corporately, as a group, we make up the temple of God. So Christ is present in each of us individually, but Christ is also present in our corporate body, in all of us together as members of the church, in the fellowship that we share. First John puts this pretty uh, distinctly in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 16 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So John is telling us God is living and working in us in our love for each other. Richard Rice calls for a new focus on the doctrine of the church, on our understanding the purpose of the church. He writes, the culmination of Christ's saving work is the creation of a community that bears his name and embodies his love. Consequently, no one can be a Christian, not in the full and fundamental sense of the word, and not be part of the Christian community. So, we see how crucial the church is to our salvation. And I, I really wanted to express in this lesson the truth of what David Mathis writes when he describes the fellowship of the church as an electric reality in the New Testament, an indispensable ingredient in the Christian faith, and one of God's chief means of grace in our lives. So, the church, you and me, fellow believers, the church is not nearly what it could be, what God intends for it to be, as long as we do not have this robust fellowship among each other. When Paul took the gospel into a new community, he often faced major obstacles. Somehow, he had to take people from every kind of situation and circumstance. He had to take men and women, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, rich and poor, he had to take people of all nationalities, of all ethnicities, and somehow these believers had to come together in fellowship, in communion, because they faced a very hostile world. They had to be a true fellowship, what David Mathis describes as an all-in, life-or-death collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming oppression. 
As Paul reminded them in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, fellowship, creating a community, a community where we share life with Christ and life with each other. This is crucial, but it's not easy. So how do we do it? How can we nurture this type of fellowship? In the second chapter of Thessalonians, Paul describes how he came to the Thessalonians, the methods that he used to birth a church among them. In his interactions, Paul lived out this concept of fellowship. He says, first, that he acted with pure motives, not from greed or self-interest. He says that he acted with integrity. He didn't manipulate using trickery or flattery. Paul also surrendered his own interest to the best interest of the Thessalonians. He did not insist on exerting his lawful authority. Also, Paul made their spiritual growth and well-being into reality. He worked to see them thrive, nurtured them as a father, encouraged them. And he also pursued intimacy with them. Paul writes how he shared not only the word with them, but he shared his life with them. And so from all of these, we can see how Paul set about to build true community or fellowship. First, we see Paul acting with pure motives, not out of greed, not out of self-interest, not for the praise of men. In the second chapter, Paul writes, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or from impure motives. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So, Paul wants us to know, beyond any doubt, that greed will kill a community. Greed will smother the fellowship that exists. In 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, You must not associate with anyone claiming to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. It's interesting. Paul takes greed and puts it in the same list as sexual immorality and idolatry and drunkenness. All of these things that we would regard as clearly evil. And Paul puts greed right there in the middle of them. Well, we need to have a definition of greed. Greed is really the selfish, the excessive desire for more. The desire to have more of something than we need more than we deserve, more than we have a right to. William Barclay defines greed as the accursed love of having. Greed really is the opposite of contentment. Gordon Gekko was a character in a movie made many years ago now, but the movie Wall Street, and he's famous for giving a speech where he praised greed. He told them, greed is good. Greed works. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge. Greed has marked the upward surge of mankind. But in reality, we know that greed destroys. 
William Barclay tells us, greed carries with it the assumption that other people and other things exist for my benefit. Greed causes us to pursue our own interest without regard for the rights of others. Proverbs 28.25 reads, The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Greed pits us against one another. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And then Paul warns the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. The problem is, we find it hard to recognize greed in ourselves. Greed, as we defined it, was excessive desire. But we never see our own desires as excessive. Greed is to desire more than we need. But we always think we have a need for what we want. Greed is to desire more than we deserve, to desire things we have no right to. But we almost always feel that we do deserve these things. We have a right to these things. So how do we recognize greed in ourselves? Well, first of all, we must understand greed doesn't involve just money. We can be greedy with our time, with our attention. We can be greedy in wanting to, to hog praise and recognition. But one of the ways to recognize greed is to ask ourselves, are we envious of others? When we hear about others' good fortunes, about what they have received or what they have, how do we respond? Do we rejoice with them or do we, do we find ourselves being envious? Do we lack empathy for others? You know, do we have no regard for how they're feeling or what they are experiencing? We can recognize greed by feelings of discontent when we feel that whatever we have, it just isn't enough. We can recognize greed by looking at our first impulse when we hear about a need. How do we respond? Is our impulse to find a way to help or is it to find an excuse not to help? When we look at greed, we realize greed has to be eliminated if we're going to have fellowship. And the cure for greed is generosity. When we foster a generous heart, when we practice a generous spirit, this will eliminate greed from our lives. When we can intentionally give away what we have, give up what we have, then it kills the desire for more. But to be generous, we have to plan for it. We need to build margins in our lives so that we have the resources to be generous with. When we spend all our money, when we use all of our time, we, when we expend all of our energy, then we have nothing left to give others even if we desire to do so. In our culture, we've established a pattern of living beyond our means, of using up everything that we have here and now, and a lot of times even borrowing on our future. We have to learn to limit, uh, to live within the limits of our money, to live within the limits of our time, to set aside these resources 
so that when the opportunity arises, we will have the means to give to other people to meet their needs. And it takes a deliberate action on our part. If we follow the pattern that's set by the society that we live in, we will live right to the edge of everything that we have, and we'll never be able to be generous people. Now, Paul also acted with integrity. He built community. He built fellowship by not using trickery or flattery. Paul writes, nor were we trying to trick you. We, you know we never use flattery. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. In our human selves, we face the temptation of wanting to dominate or to control others, to bend others to our will. In other words, we want to be the boss. One of the issues that Jesus faced over and over again with his disciples, they were constantly trying to jockey for position. Who would take the positions of leadership? As Christians, we know that we aren't to operate in this way, but it's hard for us to give up on controlling others. We manage to avoid outright physical domination. We know we can't use physical force. But we will often attempt to manipulate people with our words, with emotions. When we manipulate, we are controlling others through indirect means. And often it's in a deceptive or harmful way. We are coercing people to act in the way that we want them to act, to make the choices that we want them to make. And a lot of times we may excuse ourselves by saying, well, I'm only doing it for their good. So, we tell ourselves we're working for the other person. In reality, we're working to make sure that we get what we want accomplished. Manipulation is often marked by deceit. We aren't truthful with the other person. We hide our true intentions. And this is not the, the foundation that true fellowship can be built upon. True fellowship requires honesty, transparency with one another. We can also see that manipulation is not the way that God works. God gave us a free will, and He's even given us the power to defy Him, to refuse Him. So if God Himself does not manipulate us into doing what He wants, we should not do this either. Manipulation destroys the free will, the autonomy of the other person. And as a result, it produces resentment. It causes hard feelings between believers. Now, we can manipulate others in several ways. A lot of times as Christians, we use God's name or we use Scripture to validate what we want to do, to give authority to our plans. And we claim God's authority to manipulate others into doing what we want them to do. Because basically we tell them, by, by rebuffing us, you are actually rebuffing God. And that may not be true at all. We attempt to shame others into doing what we want them to do. To guilt them into following uh, our, our leads, uh, our guidelines. Now, manipulation can create a false sense of unity. 
From the outside, it appears as if everyone is pulling together. But it looks like the church is in agreement. But on the inside, uh, there's nothing like this. It's a false reality. Manipulation is always going to divide and destroy and cause resistance. So we resist manipulation by seeking God's kingdom first. We seek God's will ahead of our own will, ahead of anything that we want. We can see from how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And later Jesus said, seek first his, that is God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So when we give up our need for control, then we can lay manipulation aside. Now, we also see Paul forming community by surrendering or subordinating his own interest to the greater good of the Thessalonians. Paul did not insist on exerting his rightful authority. In fact, he worked day and night not to be a burden to them. He formed community by not insisting on his own rights. Paul writes here in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Paul had every right to expect specific things from the Thessalonians. He was an apostle. He was one of the leaders of the church. In addition, he was giving up his life for the Thessalonians, putting everything he had into seeing them established in Christ. Paul writes in another place, I bear the marks of Jesus branded on my body. And he meant this literally. Paul bore scars from a life spent in service to Christ. He bore scars from whippings and beatings and stonings and being imprisoned. So it would have been easy for Paul to say, look at all that I'm doing for you. The least you could do is to provide for me. But instead, Paul made it an important part of his ministry that he would never take anything from the community he was ministering to. He wanted to avoid any kind of accusations that he was there to live off of others. He worked hard with his own hands. He took support from other churches, but he made sure he took nothing from those that he was ministering to. Paul makes an interesting analogy here. Instead of asserting his authority, Paul says he was like a young child. This followed the commands of Jesus. You remember when the disciples came to Jesus to ask, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus brought a little child to them and told them, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the first century, the time of Jesus, the time of the early church, little children were lightly esteemed. They had no standing in society. Really, they were only tolerated by society. Children have no inherent power on their own. They are really powerless. They are dependent on those who are over them. They're not physically big enough or strong enough to force their own way. They have no power because of the money they have or their fame or their position in society. So 
Children have no power on their own. They must convince. They must persuade. Paul had rights, but he knew he couldn't demand that these rights be respected. As Americans, we are conditioned to demand our rights. We're fortunate to live in a nation where we do have guaranteed rights. It's our birthright, and I'm not against that. But as a Christian, the situation is different. Really, in a scriptural sense, Christians do not have rights. Now, this may sound shocking, but I believe that it's the truth. We don't have the right to property, to what we own. We don't have the right to our time. We don't have the right to our money. We don't have the right to be treated by others in a specific way. As a Christian, all of our rights have been surrendered. They've been ceded to the will of the Father. We allow the Father to determine what is going to be given to us. And Jesus expressed this very clearly when he writes in Matthew, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, a lot of times we want to find excuses for not really listening to what Jesus is saying here. And there are limits to this. We are always to act in love toward another person. And sometimes to give in to their demand, to give in to their request, would actually end up harming them. And if that's the case, then we are certainly not to do it. But Jesus is telling us we are not to insist on what we have a right to. We are willing, we are to be willing to submit our rights to others. Now the question comes up, well, Paul certainly demanded his rights at times. As a Roman citizen, Paul enjoyed certain legal standing, and he brought this issue up from time to time. But if you'll look at what Paul did when he brought up his idea or his standing as a Roman citizen, it was always in the interest of furthering the mission that he was on, of furthering the purposes of God and of Christ. He was not using his status as a Roman citizen to gain special privileges for himself. If we're going to build community, it will require us to forego our own rights We have to surrender our interest to the good of the community, to the good of the fellowship. Now, Paul also made the growth and the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians a priority. He created fellowship by working to see them thrive. It's interesting. Paul says that he nurtured them as a mother. He encouraged them as a father. He writes, For you know that we deal with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And then he also writes, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So, we are to meet together to spur one another on. C.S. Lewis writes, In each of my friends, 
there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. And the idea is there, there is something in you that I can bring out. There's something in me that you can bring out. And if we're not together, if we're not in fellowship, these parts of ourselves become neglected. So how do we do this? How do we spur one another on? It requires that we take time for each other. And this is hard to do because our lives are so busy. John Piper, when he looks at this verse from from Hebrews, it begins by saying, let us consider. John Piper writes, literally, this is God's call for us to consider one another. That is, to look at one another, to think about one another, to focus on one another, to let your mind be occupied with one another. The goal of this focus is to think of ways of stimulating others to love and good deeds. He goes on to say, I urge you to hear God's word in Hebrews 10, 24. When you get up in the morning, consider, think about, ponder, deliberate, meditate other people with this conscious goal. What can I do today so that they will be stirred up to love and to good deeds? So, you know, uh, as we as we get up, each day is different. People will change. Circumstances will change. But we need to consider those around us and to consider ways in which we can urge them onward, ways in which we can encourage, ways in which we can stir them up. Finally, Paul built community by pursuing intimacy, not just preaching the word to them, but sharing himself with them. Paul writes, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Paul recognized the importance of fellowship in forming community. He was willing to be intimate, to be personal with the Thessalonians, not just coming to preach to them, but to join with them in sharing his life. Now, fellowship requires intimacy, requires us to be open and honest with each other. We can't hide behind a false front. And that's something that we have a hard time with in the church. Many times, we don't want others to see us as we really are. We want people, frankly, to feel that we're better than we are. So we form very superficial relationships, but that will not allow fellowship to exist. When we are intimate in fellowship with each other, then we can speak the truth to each other. Ephesians 4.15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And then in Galatians, Paul tells them, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But we can't bear one another's burdens if we don't know the burdens that they truly have. Also, when we are open with one another, when we share with one another, it can provide a unique mechanism for dealing with sin in our own lives. Confessing 
our faults, our sins to one another can be very powerful. Richard Foster writes, The followers of Jesus Christ have been given the authority to receive the confession of sin and to forgive in Jesus' name. John 20, 23, Jesus told his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Bonhoeffer writes, A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. As long as I am by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought into the light. This is hard for us to do, and we have to be careful in how we approach this. But confessing, sharing with one another difficulties that we are going through, even spiritual difficulties, can have a great power and great effect in our lives. We, frankly, are scared to be intimate because it requires us to be vulnerable to each other. We run a risk when others know who we really are. But it's interesting, Paul himself was willing to reveal his own vulnerability. 1 Corinthians 2.3, Paul writes, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Wade Bearden tells us true community can be birthed only from openness. It's only when we share our true selves that we can join together, that we can form this community. So we don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to show ourselves as we really are. But it opens up true connections to other people. There are benefits of being vulnerable. When we're vulnerable, it reduces these unhealthy comparisons and competition, the times when we compete with each other. If we show our vulnerability, we automatically reduce competition. And I think that's something that's becoming so important in our modern world with so much emphasis on social media, a Facebook post and an Instagram post and all of these. There's this temptation to build ourselves up into this fantasy life that doesn't truly exist. And in this way, we never share our true selves with one another. We never risk becoming vulnerable, becoming open to one another. But there are other benefits of being vulnerable. It normalizes failure. It makes us aware of how other people are failing. It's not just ourselves. It's an opportunity to receive God's grace. And we receive grace from God through Jesus Christ, of course, but we also receive grace through one another, through the body of the church. So, Paul recognized fellowship among believers was crucial, was uh, extremely important, but he also knew that it was hard to accomplish. And so, he modeled for the Thessalonians how they could build fellowship by acting with pure motives, by acting out of integrity, by subordinating their interest to the interest of the community, to make the growth and the spiritual well-being of the community a priority, and then finally 
to pursue intimacy with one another, to open ourselves up and share our lives with each other. So that's the challenge that I want to leave to you today. Can you begin to form this community, this fellowship with one another? It's interesting. John Piper, as he describes this fellowship, he uses the word explosive. And he goes on to say that he uses that word explosive for a very specific reason. He says, life is too short. The world is too evil. The people outside are too broken and helpless for us to settle for a fellowship as a comfortable togetherness, a fellowship that has no transforming, empowering, explosive effect when we gather together. So what would happen in our community if this type of explosive fellowship was a true reality? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for the lessons that we've learned from your word. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in you. We thank you for the gift that you've given us of fellowship with one another, fellowship in the body of believers. And we ask that you would help us to value that fellowship and to strive to make it a reality in your name. Amen.